From the High Center Studios of Messiah College on the frozen pond of Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Wave Improvement Leads Home Podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome to episode 35 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. I like that, Drew. The What did you say? The frozen... The frozen pond. The frozen pond, right? It's got that old feeling of, you know, like across the frozen tundra. Or we don't have a pond here on campus, but we have a creek. We do. Right? I guess you could play hockey on that. It doesn't really... It didn't really freeze, though. So. <laughs> so, Drew, I imagine you are a hockey fan. I am. And your favorite team? Let me guess. St. Louis Blues, right? You got me. You got me. Yeah, as listeners are sure to know, I'm first and foremost a uh, a baseball fan, but I was a two-sport kid at a time when St. Louis was, like today since the Rams bolted back to L.A., a two-sport town. So I really was, as a kid, a baseball and hockey fan primarily. What about basketball? Were you a fan no. of the old ABA St. Louis spirit? Was that their, was that no. their team? <laughs> Connie Hawkins? John, I don't want to date you, but I wasn't alive yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, in spite of that, despite not knowing how to skate and being the worst player on my little league team, I had big dreams of being a two-sport pro hero, playing <laughs> for shortstop for the Cardinals and 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 right wing for uh, for uh, the Blues. St. And, Louis is a, good, is a big hockey town. It, it? it is a big hockey town. And, you know, I, in the 90s was a great time, although... We are one of those NHL teams that has never hoisted the cup. Uh, early time, early '90s were fun because that was uh, that's when we had Adam Oates, Brendan Shanahan, Curtis Joseph, and most importantly, my all-time favorite player, Brett Hall. Brett Hall, yeah. yeah. I mean, like you think today, there's so many teams out there now. I get confused. I'm not a big hockey fan. You know, I'll watch it. I'm, I don't follow it really closely, so I get confused now when I see these southern cities and. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm i still old school. I'm old enough to like, you know, it's, you know, you, you, all the Canadians do these. They get a free pass, right? Toronto, Winnipeg, you know, uh, Montreal. And then, you know, you got the standards, right? New York, St. Louis, Detroit, right? Yeah. It just, they're all these San Jose and isn't there a doubt, like a Dallas. Dallas and, or, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Dallas has been around for a while. I yeah, think. but I mean, that was a team that moved there from Minnesota. That's Minnesota right. Minnesota North That's Stars right. moved down to Dallas. And, yeah, yeah. You know, for a long time, St. Louis was the southern, the only southern city, really the right. only city that actively participated and had a long tradition of hockey yeah. that was outside of, of kind of the frozen, right, you know, right. frozen cities of the north. How about you? Are you a fan? New Jersey? Well, like I said, I... I you know, I, I follow it. I try to follow it. I, I'll watch a game every now and then. Growing up, actually, I was a Boston Bruins fan. And I, it's just really weird. I was a Boston Bruins fan because I, like, love to play goalie. I'll talk a little bit about this in my in my commentary. And they had a goalie named Jerry Cheevers. Jerry with a G. Cheevers. And he had this mask. Some of you are old enough to remember this. He wore that kind of, what was it, like a... What was that? What were those old masks made like, of? Uh, like a, like fiberglass or something with all the X's, the black X's all over. I thought that was so cool. And growing up in an Italian American kind of household, I always liked Tony Esposito. I'm sorry, Phil Esposito. He had a brother named Tony who played for the Blackhawks. I think it was. I someone's. I'm gonna get that. I got think I got that wrong. Someone someone tell me if I did. But then like during the '80s, I I jumped on the Islanders bandwagon you know when they had those great teams in the 80s uh, i liked the devils for a while i got to admit i was rooting for, i rooted for the rangers so as you can tell like 
you know, I don't have deep, deep loyalties because no, no New Yorker like says one year you're rooting for the Rangers and one for the Devils. It's just, that's like a Mets Yankees thing. Yeah. So yeah, so I'm, I'm actually really looking forward then to our episode today. Cause we're going to, if you haven't figured this out yet, we're going to be talking hockey and our guest is going to be Bruce Berglund. He is working on a fascinating project about global hockey, the globalization of hockey. I think whether you're a hockey fan or not, I think you're going to find this conversation with Bruce to be very interesting. I might add that Bruce Berglund is our second return guest. That's right. Amy Bass, who remember a few episodes ago, we talked to her about her new book on this uh, incredible team of Somali, soccer team of Somalian refugees in uh, Maine. She was our first return guest. Now Bruce is back. He was our guest on episode 18. We talked to him about his new book at the time, Castle and Cathedral in Modern Prague, Longing for the Sacred in a Skeptical Age. And for a non-American subject, we actually got a lot of positive feedback about that episode. And if I remember correctly, we may have even talked at the end of the interview about his current project on hockey yeah. uh, in that podcast. Yeah, we touched on it just, just briefly. So I think this is a good time. Yeah. Playoffs are about to start. So I think this is a great time to bring it back. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's a good time to talk about hockey here as we approach the playoff season. Well, I know that Bruce was in South Korea for the Olympics in February. So I'm eager also to hear about that, get a report on how, the, how this project is moving. But before we get to Bruce, Drew, tell us how... We can connect, tell our listeners how they can connect with the podcast. The Wave Improvement Leads Home is a proud member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Head to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. Particularly, I want to highlight today, Second Decade. It's a fascinating podcast that explore, explores broadly the history of just the second decade of the 19th century. I think it's a very uh, fruitful approach. Host Sean Munger covers global topics while exploring the interconnected nature of the era. And it's also beautifully produced. They have voice actors reading primary documents and good mu- good mu- mood music. So, I, you know, it's a, it's a great list. So they don't I, just wing it like us. So. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then as always, we want to give a shout out to our sponsors. Our podcast is brought to you through the generous donations of Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, and Gretchen Adams. And as always, many thanks to Jennings College Consulting discovering the right college fit for your future. If you want to become a sponsor of the show, please head over to thewayofimprovement.com and click support. And the best way to spread the word about the podcast is to take it to social media. So again, follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast on Twitter and Facebook. And consider giving us a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher. Those reviews are clutch. Also, since it's relative to this episode, I need to call out one of our donors, David Onion. Apparently he's a Dallas Stars fan. And he keeps tweeting disparagingly about my blues as we're both fighting for that last coveted wild card spot, um, at least at the time of this recording. So stop it, David. I'm still mad at the stars for taking away my beloved Brett Hall in 1998. <laughs> also, thank you for supporting the show. Thank you, by the way, to everybody who uh, who supports the podcast. Uh, you know, we really appreciate your support. You know, every now and then on the blog, I'll blog something out and then tweet it out. We still could use your support. You know, again, we're on a shoestring budget here. We we produce this thing episode to episode. We have some great guests lined up uh, for the rest of season four. We hoping we're hoping we can make those uh, episodes happen, and we could use your use your support to to help us uh, do that. Bruce Berglund will be with us soon, but first, you have a story for us, John. 
I grew up in an ice skating family, but I was never much of an ice skater. Nevertheless, I spent many winter afternoons playing hockey on the frozen pond at Massar Park, a small township park created out of a sandlot that my mother's family sold to the community when I was a little boy. Though I'm certain that skating and pond hockey did not dominate my life in the same way that it would have if I had grown up in Minnesota or Wisconsin or Canada, it was still a rite of passage. As soon as the weather turned cold, we would grab our skates, gloves, and sticks, jump on our bikes, and ride over to Massar Park a few miles away. As I envision those afternoons in my mind, I see the drab sky of a North Jersey January, its lack of color matching the grayness of the ice. I remember trying to sneak in one more game before daylight faded away and we could no longer see the puck. I can still feel the intensity of the cold on my face. The bike ride home always seemed a lot longer than the ride to the park, and I'm sure the wind in our faces did not make it any easier. Dinner awaited, but so did homework. Those days of pond hockey still reverberate in the life of my family. My brother was a phenomenal skater who always impressed the older kids with his speed and stick handling. He passed this along to his son, my nephew, who is currently bouncing around the junior leagues in the United States and Canada, trying to find a path to a professional hockey career. Since I could not skate very well, I always ended up playing goalie. I was the great protector of a cage made with old two-by-fours and used wire from someone's chicken coop. Some days I did not even wear skates. I'd just stand in front of the goal and slide around on the ice in my Chuck Taylors. We had a rule at Massar Park. No lifting the puck. Since I wore no helmet or pads, this kept me reasonably safe. But every now and then I would come home with bruises or a black eye. At some point, my father took me to Marcello's Sporting Goods Store in downtown Boonton, New Jersey to buy me a goalie stick. I remember being upset that the only brands Marcello carried were Coho and CCM. I wanted a Northland goalie stick because that was the brand used by Jim Craig, the goalie of the gold medal winning United States Olympic team in 1980. Craig was my hero. I wrote papers about him in school and in a pre-internet age, did my best to learn everything about his life. Some of it was not very inspiring, I might add. There was a brief period when I seriously thought I could be the starting goalie for either the 1984 or 1988 U.S. Olympic hockey team. I'm sure if I dig deep enough in my parents' attic, I will find the notebook in which I recorded, step by step, the training schedule that would one day get me to Sarajevo or Calgary. First, of course, I would need to learn how to skate. As I look back on my childhood days playing pond hockey at Massar Park, I realize that I was completely oblivious to the social and cultural factors that made this possible. I was part of a working class family, but we lived in a suburb of New York City and my father made enough money to buy me and my two brothers skates, sticks, gloves, and pucks. I have no doubt that a healthy dose of nationalism inspired my love of hockey, especially after 1980 uh, when the U.S. Olympic hockey team upset the Soviet Union. I'm not an expert on climate change, 
But I imagine that the ice stayed frozen longer in the 1970s and early 1980s. I lived in an age when there were no cell phones, video games, or laptops to keep us entertained. When we got off the bus after school, we ran home, changed out of our school clothes, and went outside and got some kind of exercise. It was hockey and basketball in the winter, tackle football in the fall, baseball on the cul-de-sac in the spring, and wandering in the woods or riding bikes around the neighborhood all summer. I was a white working-class boy in northern New Jersey, and I imbibed the good and the bad of that kind of upbringing. And I am still not much of a skater. Our guest today is Bruce Berglund, professor of history at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He has published extensively on nationalism, religion, and architecture in 20th century Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia. He is the co-editor of Christianity and Modernity in Eastern Europe from Central European University Press 2010 and the author of Castle and Cathedral in Modern Prague, Longing for the Sacred in a Skeptical Age. He is currently writing a history of world ice hockey and the globalization of sport, be published as part of the University of California Press series, Sport in World History. Our guest today is no stranger to the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Bruce Berglund was uh, on a previous episode talking about his book, The Castle or Castle and Cathedral uh, in Modern Prague. But today we are talking with Bruce about his new project on global ice hockey. So, Bruce, welcome back to the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Thank you for having me back. Now, you have been on the road uh, studying ice hockey uh, and its yes. sort of global significance. Tell us, just tell us a little bit about like how the project, how this, tell us about the project. How did it evolve? Um, you know, what got you interested in this subject? I know you're yeah, a native so Minnesotan, so this might have something to do with it, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'll tell you briefly about the project and, and, and my travels. So, uh, so this is going to be a book on the history of global ice hockey going back to its origins in the 19th century. And it's going to go up to uh, 2018 at least uh, and, and maybe beyond that. And uh, so, of course, I can't cover every, every little town uh, in, in North America and Europe where, where hockey has been played. Uh, I'm concentrating on, on particular regions uh, so right now, right now I'm actually in Slovakia, but I've been, uh, for the last month in the Czech Republic doing research there in archives and libraries. Uh, earlier in the year I was in Korea, uh, leading up to the winter Olympics. Um, later in the spring and in the summer, I'll be in Canada. So both in Eastern Canada and Ontario, as well as out in Calgary and Edmonton. And of course, I've done a good bit of research in the U.S., in Minnesota, and Michigan, sure, in sure. different collections and and archives there. So, uh, as far as how the project evolved, so so John, you said I'm a I'm a native Minnesotan. I actually grew up in Duluth, huh. which is um, one of the the hearths of American hockey going back to uh, going back to the turn of the century. So I grew up. Uh, just a, a block away from a public park where there was a hockey rink and a big, uh, a big skating rink. So I went up there uh, a lot. I played organized hockey as a kid up until I was uh, I, up until I was in high school. I wasn't very good. Uh, it was just kind of medium. My dad, however, was a very good hockey player. He was also a 
hockey referee for high school and college uh, when I was a kid. So I remember uh, tagging along with him when he would go referee games and I would, I would watch him in action. So I watched him ref. I watched him play in senior league games. Uh, he and I watched a lot of high school and college games together. So, so I grew up with the sport. I knew the stories. I knew the lore. I knew the history of, of the sport. But in terms of thinking of, of hockey and sports in general as, as a topic of, of research and history, this wasn't something that really came to me until I was um, doing my dissertation research. Uh, so this was in 1997-98 uh, in Prague. And of course, that was the year of the uh, the Winter Olympics in Nagano, which uh, the hockey tournament was won by the Czech Republic and the first tournament with NHL players. Right. And uh, so I remember just, you know, what a um, tremendous atmosphere that was, the euphoria of, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people out in the streets and the squares and in Prague and in other cities. And uh, not only with that episode, but I had the chance to go to a couple hockey games in the Czech Republic. And I noticed, huh, you know, people people do hockey and being a hockey fan differently than than what I'm used to. And so that was my first, you could say, awareness of, of sports as a right. cultural practice that uh, is affected by particular uh, particular contexts. And so uh, the project I'm working on now really has its roots back what was it 20 years ago yeah. uh, with my first stay in the Czech Republic back in, back in 98. Yeah. Now some of our listeners probably know nothing about hockey and they're getting an education here. You said hockey that your, your, your project starts in the 19th century. Yeah. What is the, I should probably know this Drew. Um, what, what are the roots? Like where was hockey founded? Like what, is it a European? Is it Canadian? What, I mean, what is the, what are the roots? So if you could give me like a quick primer on this, where, where no, I can't give you a quick primer. I mean, you've just, you just open up a can of worms uh -oh. akin to akin to where does baseball come from? John? Yeah. Yeah. But where's, you, can you answer that with a quick is, firmer? Yeah, no, but I mean, isn't it, I mean, I'm assuming the United States, right? But what? No, what? no, Canada, Canada is, is rightfully known as the, as the birthplace of, of hockey, of the modern sport of hockey. So, um, it's the, the rules of the game. Um, the early rules of the game were set down in the 1870s. Uh, there's been great debate, uh, since the 1870s yeah. as to, where the game had its origins, whether in Nova Scotia or in Kingston, Ontario, or uh, in Montreal. Um, but wherever you look, there are, how to say, uh, antecedents uh, to the modern yeah. sport across Canada into colonial America uh, over in the British Isles, uh, you have a variety of different kinds of, just as with baseball, yeah. you have a variety of different early kinds of, of games played on ice with skates, with, with, you could say early or primitive skates with, with some type of stick with a yeah. goal and usually with a ball. Yeah. Uh, so what becomes known as in the Europeans, when they begin to play this sport at the turn of the century, they call it Canadian hockey. Oh, so wow. what is distinct about Canadian hockey is that it's played on a smaller rink. Uh, prior to this time, uh, people would play these, these skate stick and goal games on, on rivers, on, uh, frozen soccer fields and so forth. 
Uh, so the Canadians invent a game that's in a smaller and more confined space, and the Canadians' um, great invention that they bring to the game is the puck, rather yeah. than playing with uh, playing with a ball. And uh, and also that brings a change to the stick. Uh, so sticks prior to that had been curved, uh, more like lacrosse or field hockey yeah. sticks. Whereas uh, at the turn of the century or in the 1880s, 1890s, you begin to get the the characteristic uh, bladed, flat bladed hockey stick. So yeah, so that's where where it begins to develop is back uh, okay. in in Canada in the 1870s, 1880s, and then it spreads quickly. From Eastern Canada uh, to Manitoba, uh, down into Minnesota, into New England, and it jumps over to England and then to the continent uh, right away in the 1890s. So it is a North American uh, phenomenon, if you will, at least in its origins. Uh, I would say it's it's much like baseball in that, yes, it's North American, but it's built upon a... Uh, a European and a specifically British foundation. Is it, um, is it an inherently sort of white sport? Did, did, uh, say native Americans play some form of it or. Drew's, uh, there's, Drew's uh, mad at me because to, I stole his question. Yeah, but go ahead. Well, yeah, according to, uh, according to some historians who study the origins of the sport, they see its roots. Well, you can see its roots from, from, a couple of different sources. Uh, one is that it's derived from uh, rugby. Uh, and so the early forms of hockey, you couldn't pass forward. Uh, there, was, uh, there still is an offside rule and so forth. And, and hockey was the, the modern sport was invented by uh, young um, Canadian, white Canadian men who were looking for something to do in the winter when they couldn't play rugby. Uh, the other root of the sport is from the the native Canadian sport of lacrosse, right. and so uh, people who look into the into the roots uh, of the early game can see traces of both influences. And, there, and there's a history to the to the manufacturing of the sticks, right? Because the sticks were predominantly made by by the Mi'kmaq uh, indigenous nation in Canada. At least that's my understanding of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yes. So, which would then connect it to to lacrosse and, and other indigenous yep, sports. Exactly. So yeah, exactly. So this is uh, so this is kind of really fun and interesting kind of knowledge about the history of sports, uh, history of <laughs> hockey. Um, what about you know your project is on global hockey? Tell us about the the sort of deeper issues here at stake in. Um, in this project, you know, what are some of the questions outside of kind of hockey as a sport that you're asking in this project? Well, so what I'm looking at with this project, you know, so one, I'll say there, there have been plenty of books and uh, articles, popular history, scholarly histories about uh, hockey in Canada, the NHL, amateur hockey and and so forth. Uh, There has been very little done on hockey as a world sport and uh so so very little done with with archival sources with library sources say from uh from russia or from europe and at the same time there's been a lot of research in the last 15 years or so on the history of sports done by area specialists so people who know local languages and so forth on different sports in different world regions so baseball in east asia 
1972 Olympics in Germany. There are books on soccer in France, soccer in right. Africa, soccer in Latin America, but but nothing on hockey. So so what I'm doing is aims to fill um, fill a gap both in the literature on hockey as well as in the literature on on world sport. And uh, so what I'm I'm looking at is. Uh, part of the project, so it's about global hockey, but but the main aim is looking at hockey as a case study in understanding globalization and, in particular, the the globalization of sport right. is is the direction I'm going with my research. So tell us a little bit about that. What what is that? You know, what are the kind of questions that you're asking? You know, how does your project look different than say, you know, that book on the '72 Olympics or something like that? Um, you know, you're obviously looking for kind of, uh, uh, you know, similarities between hockey as a sort of global phenomenon rather than the particularities of, of local traditions. Right. So so how do you know what kind of questions are you asking of your sources? Yeah. So so one of the things I'm looking at is exactly what you were saying is, is where do you see and this has been interesting as I've been doing my research over here is where do you see kind of local practices um, uh, maintaining resilience over the decades, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to you could say more international influences, whether influences coming from Canada, which was particularly strong in the early 20th century, and then after the war, influences coming from, in particular, the Soviet Union. Uh, and by this, I mean practices in terms of uh, how do you train athletes? How do you mm-hmm. train hockey players? How do you conduct your practices? How do you play the game? How, you know, how does the strategy work when you get, get onto the ice? Uh, and so that's been the interesting thing I've been looking at are these, these, um, these tensions between local practices, whether in the Czech Republic or Slovakia or right. up in Finland, uh, between you could say local sport tradition, uh, and local sporting culture and what, um, what is coming from both the West and from the East in terms of, um, you could say the, the larger trends, uh, in, in the way hockey is practiced. So, uh, so those are the things, yeah. So those are the things I'm looking at, but you know, in terms of, of thinking of globalization, that's such a big, you know, amorphous term and and i have tried to come up with something of a of a definition based on my reading and you know mainly in the social sciences and so my four points in terms of what i'm looking at is is number one so uh uh globalization means that we have interconnection across nations across different world regions Mm -hmm. uh along with the movement of goods services money information and people right so that's that's basic number two uh, we have the expansion of institutions, the expansion of social relations around the world, with the result being that that different practices and what we would call, I guess, values mm-hmm. are diffused around the world. Uh, number th- number three is that changes in society and in culture uh, become more accelerated due to advances in technology and communications. This would be a case in point. We're having a, uh, a podcast interview while I'm sitting in, in Slovakia. Right. And, uh, and then lastly, number four, and I think this is really key, especially when we think of, of sports and sports culture, is, uh, is that we are aware 
we're global, right? We all yeah. know that that events on the other side of the world affect our local politics, they affect our local economies, they affect the fabrics of our communities. And, um, you know, and you can see this in probably in your classes, right? That, that you know, um, today, how many students did you see wearing soccer shirts from the English Premier League? Yeah, yeah. I don't think any, but that doesn't mean they're not out there. Yeah, but it's pretty <laughs> common. <laughs> no, I know. I'm just kidding. Sorry. For, no, it's not. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. We could cut that. You know, it's, it's a pretty common occurrence, right? <laughs> no, you're right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so so looking at sport and looking specifically at hockey, you know, so how do I see these these four aspects of globalization um, shaping hockey, yeah. shaping sport, and at the same time, uh, how do I see sport and specifically hockey? Do we see them these these games bringing about changes in these these different aspects of globalization? So, so, so like that's. That's kind of the big the big questions that are driving my so work. So when you study, say, like the Slovakian hockey style, right there, the way they play, um, this is this is literally a study of the actual right. You said strategy before, right? You know, are, are you suggesting that you know the way the Slovakians play defense or pass the puck or the speed of the game or something, the way they play, kind of might reflect kind of larger questions yeah. about their culture and their is, am I right in that? Yeah. 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 You know, that's and, fascinating. And, and, and people who, and there's an argument about this, right? Yeah. It, this goes back and forth and, and we see the same with, we see the same with baseball. We see the same with, yeah, yeah. with soccer. Uh, there are some who say that, that yes, when a soccer player, for instance, um, has the ball, you know, the field is open. The decision that player makes of what to do with the ball is, is shaped by culture. That's fascinating. And then there are academics yeah. who say, no, yeah. the whole idea that there are cultural style or that there are national styles and, and cultural determinants in terms of what a player is going to do with the ball. Yeah. Uh, those are all, those are all narratives that are made up by, yeah. Yeah. by journalists and fans and, and so forth. But, um, uh, no, you know, to give you an example, so moving away yeah. from Slovakia, let's let's take an example of, of Finland. And I was talking with some uh, some hockey historians up in Finland, and they were pointing out that uh, Finland had actually this this strong tradition of not team sports but individual sports, uh, in particular running and and Nordic skiing yeah, and so forth. Yeah. And so so hockey was something of a late arrival in the post-war period, and it didn't really take off until the 1960s. And initially, contrary to, to all of our stereotypes about Scandinavian hockey, uh, Finnish hockey was much more about uh, individual skill. And, uh, uh, you know, so more like North American hockey. And it was only with the influence of coaches coming from the Soviet Union and from Sweden that yeah. the Finns began to develop more of a team-oriented game. And so uh, the Finns had what we could call kind of a hybrid form of hockey with an emphasis both on individual skill and creativity as well as an emphasis on um, um, the team and, say, say um, structures, offensive plays and defensive plays and so forth. Uh, they developed this this hybrid relatively early, 
because it mixed together their yeah. own sporting culture as well as the influence of coaches coming from the outside. Yeah, that's fascinating stuff. Um, that's that's goes a lot deeper than kind of you know what I've what I've often thought about. This sounds like a great great book, a great project, and only yeah. only a scholar of global hockey could could drew could make the transition from Slovakia to Finland yeah. right with such ease yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's funny and this kind of relates to kind of relates to our next question i've always when i've thought about world hockey i've always just assumed there's the north american style nhl smaller rink you know more aggression and then the international style with the bigger rink and more kind of finesse but it seems like there it it's a little like most things, it's a little bit more complicated than that, you know, rather than just an NHL versus everyone else kind of divide in the way they No, play. no. Yeah. Yeah. Tomorrow, tomorrow I'm having an interview with a, uh, a long time Czech coach. So he's been around since the 1960s and, uh, and I've been reading his work that, you know, you know, basically decades before all of the, the, data analysis we see in sports today you know with the numbers crunching with baseball and basketball mm. and and so forth he was doing all of this back in the 60s and his analysis of different teams at the world cup and i've been reading his reports where you know back to your point drew it's not simply canadians do this and all the europeans do this he would break it break it down by the swedes and the finns and the swiss and the soviets and the the checks we all do these different things here's how we yeah. uh here's how we play the game and then he would have pages and pages of diagrams of the rink of the offensive zone the defensive zone to show the way these different countries played the game well i mean this, this transitions to kind of why i have that perception and it's because i think most americans even even those of us who are who are hockey fans our our closest experience with global hockey always comes every every four years yeah, and yeah. With, with the Olympics yeah. and, and, you know, you were in Korea for the Olympics. So tell us, you know, what, how, how that, a, what you were doing there and how that piece, uh, b how that piece fits in with this larger project. Yeah. So I was, uh, in Korea, I was there for uh, a total of a month. So three weeks leading up to the, the Olympics and then the first week of competition. Uh, so I was the guest of the, the Korean ice hockey federation, uh, as well as Korea University in in Seoul. And uh, the work I was doing, I, I met with uh, different people involved with the Korean Ice Hockey Federation leading up to the Olympics. So I interviewed both uh, uh, members of both the men's and women's uh, Korean Olympic teams. Uh, I met with the general manager and the head coach of one of the professional uh, teams that plays in Seoul. There's a uh, uh, professional league that has teams in Korea and in Japan. Uh, and so what I wanted to do in the course of these interviews is just get a sense of the, the development of Korean hockey, not just leading up to the, the Olympics in Pyeongchang, uh, but also the development of the professional game and then the game in terms of at the youth level, the high school level, and the college level. So I did all those interviews. I met with some members of um, uh, of other national teams uh, who were in in Korea for the Olympics. Uh, met with some officials from the International Ice Hockey Federation, and then I went to I went to games. So I went to three women's games, three men's games, 
Uh, I went to the, uh, three games of the Korean women's team. And uh, so you probably all know the story of, of the North Korean players right. who joined the Koreans team. So, so I was at the games uh, when you had those, those North Korean cheerleaders coming in and sitting in different yeah. sections of the yeah. crowd. Uh, you had kind of this, this pro unification fan group uh, from, from various cities in the South who were at the, arena chanting along so it was this really festive dynamic energetic atmosphere even though the women's team was was beaten handily in all three games that they played yeah uh it was really this this great atmosphere which which turned into kind of a pro unified korea rally yeah. uh and then i went to three men's games including one of the the korean men's teams games uh against the czech republic actually okay i remember seeing something you posted on social media where you i don't know if it was the men or women's korea team but it you said something like somebody told you i think it was japan right if 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 the korean team could beat japan that would be like their miracle on ice is that did you post oh, something yes. like that that was a yes, great that, i thought that, that, that was, was a great yeah, story yeah, i posted that yeah yeah and and for when i was meeting with with uh, people involved with the professional the men's professional team based in in seoul uh, that was something they talked about as well. That that as they as they develop their team and develop their program, the aim was not winning the league. The aim was beating the teams from Japan. Right. right. First, we first if we can beat the teams from Japan here in Korea, that's one step. Then, if we can beat the teams from Japan in Japan, yeah. that's an even better step. So so no, Japan was the uh, has been the measure of of hockey success for the Koreans. Okay. Okay. Um, now by this point in the interview, we've talked about things like globalization and so forth. What are, what are some of the other outside forces that affect sort of global hockey? I remember, I remember reading your, you sent along uh, a summary of your project to us before the interview. You know, there was some stuff in there about climate change. I want to ask you about class, uh, social class here in a second. I mean, what are some of those kind of macro forces that you're looking at in this project, apart from globalization sort of generally, that that shape um, hockey around the globe? Well, so you've mentioned a couple of them that are key. So, yeah. so one is is climate change. Right. Uh, so when hockey develops in the late 19th, early 20th century, uh, this is a different, this is really the, the tail end of the Little Ice Age, right? So right. In, in North America, as well as in Europe, uh, you have much colder winters. So you can have, even in, even in England, you can have outdoor ice. Um, you know, you've probably seen pictures of, of people skating in, well, in Central Park, right? In yeah, the 20s yeah. and 30s and yeah. so forth. Uh, people used to go skating regularly in the 1920s and 30s on the mall, you know, yeah. in the reflecting pool in Washington, D.C., yeah. right? Something you, you can't do anymore except in the rarest of winters. Right. So, you know, over the course of the 20th century, as, as the climate has warmed up, this has brought a change in, in hockey in that hockey has had to, in order to survive, move indoors, and as it's moved indoors into arenas with refrigerated rinks, this has also allowed hockey to spread into uh, into areas, into southern states in the right. United States, into other countries uh, where you you wouldn't have ice. So so the game is spreading 
in terms of its geography. Uh, the game is spreading in terms of on the calendar. You can now have hockey in the summer if you play it inside. Right. And that has brought a shift in the game. And we're still kind of going through, uh, as I've been doing interviews with former players, with current coaches, with NHL scouts, uh, you know, kind of with, with people my age and older, the, the old curmudgeons, you know, who grew up playing the game outside, right. they're kind of having a difficult time going through this change as, as hockey has become wholly a game played inside and a game played in places like, like Vegas and yeah. Arizona and, yeah. and Korea and Mexico. So, um, so with this, with this, uh, change in climate you also talk about in your summary of your project uh pond hockey and yeah i, I, I was unaware that this was a, a, a like a real thing other than just kids it's a you huge know, thing kids getting out there and playing right after school or whatever or on saturday um it, it's a huge thing and how does how does climate affect that i mean yeah, I, so, I know there's so, obvious reasons but maybe you could you could extrapolate a little bit yeah you know so so Pond hockey was something that you did as a, as a kid or as a teenager, right? It was just, you know, an idle activity. You'd go out and skate. It was unstructured, right? Uh, but now there is, uh, you know, and I would say it's due to both climate change as well as the, um, the professionalization of youth hockey, where, yeah. where youth hockey is now so, so uh, highly organized and coached. Um, as well as just the, the, the expansion of the NHL into this, this multi-billion uh, dollar business, that there's this nostalgia to go back to kind of the roots of the game. Yeah. Uh, and the roots of the game are outside on some natural frozen surface. Uh, and uh, over the last, it's been about 15 years since the first pond hockey tournament in, in Canada, uh, and so over the last decade and a half, you've had the spread of these organized pond hockey tournaments across all of Canada, throughout much of the northern tier of the United States, and now as well into, into Europe. And so it's this attempt to capture um, or this, this you know, nostalgic effort yeah. to go back to the game as we remember it. And it's interesting because I've gone to a number of the websites of these tournaments and nearly all of them have some variation on saying hockey the way it was meant to be played. Yeah, so there's yeah. this sense of hockey today that, that there's something not entirely right with the sport. Right. And so by playing pond hockey, even though we have sponsors for our teams, even though we have corporate sponsors for the tournaments, even though it's this entire, you know, this highly organized tournament. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going back to some kind of uh, uh, primeval form right, of the right. game by going out for this tournament. That's really interesting. One more thing I wanted to ask you about these outside forces. Um, and I'll preface this by saying uh, I have a nephew, my brother's son, who, um, who plays, plays hockey. He's, he's, uh, he's yet to go to college. He's 22, 23. He's been bouncing around these junior leagues. He was in you know, the British Columbia hockey league. He was playing for a team in Surrey. Uh, then he went to Amarillo, Texas, which, you know, I've just like, what the heck am, you know, what are they? There's hockey in Amarillo, (laughs) Texas. You know, of course you just mentioned how it doesn't really matter anymore with the, with the indoor play, (laughs) but you know, he's been bouncing around. It looks like he's finally going to kind of give it up and, and, and go play in college. But, um, 
you know, my brother, my brother's a, does very well for himself financially. And, you know, I can't imagine, uh, being able to afford on a professor's salary, uh, you know, my kids advancing in high, you know, advancing that high in hockey. It's just very, very, very expensive. And the ice time is expensive and so forth. I'm just curious. I mean, what role does social class play like in, in outside of the United States and Canada, um, or maybe just outside of the United States? I mean, is, is hockey a kind of rich kid sport? Um, you know, how does that, how does that social class dynamic work in other places. Yeah. So this is a, a problem in hockey in the U S in Canada, as well as in Europe. Uh, when I talk to people in Korea, they recognize it as a problem there. Okay. So, so no, no matter where you go, hockey is expensive yeah. because of the equipment, because of paying for the ice time. Uh, time magazine did a report, uh, last, last year on, on the increasing costs of youth sports uh, so hockey is the second most expensive on average, the second most expensive sport in the United States. Uh, in Canada, costs for extra training and summer camps right. can bring the, the price of playing youth hockey up to $15,000 yeah. a year. Yeah. Uh, so there was a great study done or a story done by the Vancouver Sun. So talking about your nephew playing out right. in British Columbia, which brought up this fact that that hockey's becoming a game only for those with the means to play. And it's also, like I said, so this is something that that uh, it's been in the Czech media, in the Slovak media. Okay. Uh, there have been reports in the Russian media where uh, Russian ice hockey officials have had to address this question of, is hockey a, a sport only for the children of rich families? Yeah. Uh, in Sweden, it's a problem. So everywhere it's a problem and, and everywhere ice hockey federations are trying to address it and they are doing a good job, I should say, in, in making, uh, in, in improving accessibility, right? So, so allowing young players to get access to the game. Uh, the problem that still remains though, is that for those young players to advance to the top levels, and really to be competitive in a sense that they would, say, get a junior's contract or a right. professional contract or, or uh, a college scholarship uh, is that. And, and you know about this from, from being involved in, in sports with, yeah. uh, with your daughters, right? right? So this right. idea that if you want to make it to the next level, you have to pay for all of this extra training and all of these other opportunities. Yep to um to give your child the chance to compete oh my gosh and, yeah the amount and that's of, yeah. where the big bills come in for hockey well the amount of money i used to i've spent on club volleyball right and and then exactly. driving to an elite club in philly three times a week 90 minutes you know i mean so yeah so it's so it's uh it, now just a follow-up to that bruce in the um in the uh, in the in the Soviet when the Soviet Empire you know, or, you know the Eastern Bloc the Soviet Union was it the same thing I mean or was this just you know, were they just finding like the best talent regardless of privilege or whatever and and getting them into the system in other words does kind of capitalism or the move to a freer society uh, does that um, does that create these problems now that you're talking about or have they always been there. Does that make yes. sense? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it's also the case, so we see the movement to uh, to capitalism, what we would call 
uh, a neoliberal economy, right, right. Uh, its effect in Europe, its effect in the former Soviet Union. We also see it, its effect in, in North America, right? So you remember uh, growing up, uh, you had a much more, in the United States, you had a much more developed system of public parks, yeah. uh, of community activities that were provided by the community. Right. Yes, there was probably some nominal fee that parents would have to play. Yeah. Uh, and this is something I've learned in the interviews that I've done with with um, former hockey players, you know, especially guys who are older than me, is that they were able to play hockey because of the contributions of the public park system, yeah. because of the contributions, say, of local unions that provided the equipment right. that took care of the rink. And... You know, just as you don't have the state-subsidized athletic system in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, we also don't have, in the United States, this, you know, well-supported, publicly-funded park system yeah. where kids learned not just hockey, but other sports. This is so interesting, Drew. I mean, this stuff is, you know, I mean, I could just keep, we could just keep talking, but unfortunately, Bruce, our, our time is up. I still have tons more questions. We'll have to get you back on once the book comes out yeah. um, yes, and, I, yeah. and, and I get a chance to read it and then really kind of dig into some of this stuff. But thanks for, thanks for giving us this update on the project. Um, I'm really looking forward to reading the book. Uh, our guest today has been Bruce Berglund, uh, professor of uh, history at Calvin College, um, and uh, and a Fulbright scholar studying global ice hockey. Um, thanks again, Bruce. Thank you, gentlemen. Well, Drew, Bruce is always a great great interview, and this this project sounds really amazing. Well, I mean, it, it's it's interesting how this is connected to to some other conversations we've been having. I, you know, as he was talking about the the cultural significance and the cultural differences and the way people play their sports of choice you know i couldn't help but think of episode 20 lavita baseball yeah. and 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 some of the things that our our guest adrian burgos junior was sharing with us about the kind of latin approach to baseball and 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 the ways those different approaches sometimes conflict in, yeah, in yeah. The, most specifically in the world the, the latest world baseball classic and and the, the kind of surprise run by uh, the Puerto Rican national team. Yeah, I mean these questions that Bruce is asking are sort of you know made me think of kind of these old his, you know debates among historians, right? You know, you know there's this is there a Finnish way of hockey or a Swedish way? You know, I'm thinking like you know you know from even your own work right about the Pennsylvania frontier, right? Scots Irish are just always angry, or yeah. you know these people always play that are, are this way or this way when ethnicity. Uh, is often, you know, a constructed, constructed thing. And I think Bruce's point about Finland kind of being this, you know, you know, kind of amalgam of Russian influences and, and other kind of Scandinavian influences was, was really interesting. And it's a great way of kind of getting at these bigger questions that we ask in, whether it be Native American studies or colonial America or some other field. But then it, it, it becomes more about the institutions, right? And, right, and right. the structures that are put in you. That gets to your question about Soviet hockey and the, and yeah. the ways in which a state-sponsored hockey program right, right. is different than one in which, yeah. you know, uh, behind class kind of breaks through because there's, right. you know, you have to pay for it yourself. Well, like behind that question, you know, was the kind of, you know, me growing up in the Cold War, you know, there was always that question like, class didn't really matter in the Soviet Union. They just took their best players, no matter what 
class they were in, you know, the best athletes and they put them in a camp for their whole life from as little kids. And they churned out these phenomenal red army, (laughs) red army teams. Um, so it's really interests me the way in which, as you know, we could debate just how free Russia has become, right? That's a whole other question, but with the end of the sort of Soviet regime, and the emergence of a, a, a sort of neoliberal economy or capitalism or whatever you want to call it, how that might affect the ways in which these these uh, these nations either continue to be on the world stage as as global hockey powers or perhaps decline. Right? right. You know, those are all fascinating questions that I hope he unpacks in this project. Yeah, and I, I just really love the the question of kind of national national sport cultures. You know, yeah. If I one more kind of anecdote here, you know, that um, one of my good friends, Trey Overholt, the musician behind yeah, Overholt, yeah. he was a soccer player here at Messiah. And I know, you know, Messiah's soccer approach, the way they coach their team is highly influenced by the Dutch national right, right. approach to, 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 to soccer. Yeah. So, you know, it, and then, and then, but that's, that's also fast, like the multi-layered, right. And you could also say that one of the reasons why, you know, Dave Brandt and, you know, the, the, the architect of the Messiah program was attracted to the Dutch system was because at a faith-based college, you know, the Dutch system, right. If I understand it correctly, and I'm no soccer expert is all about sort of sacrificing yourself for the greater good. And, you know, so all of these convergences of religion, you know, strategy, the culture of Messiah college, the, you know, the, the, how to be successful in their particular division or whatever is, is yeah. Yeah. Cause the, yeah, the Dutch, the Dutch soccer team historically has been very, very good, but right. it's also very systematic. It's right, very, right, uh, right. you know, everyone has a role. It's, it doesn't rely on, on, yeah. you know, these, these star players, yeah. the way, for example, the Brazilian. Style. And then you, and then you also throw in say a coach like Dave Brandt, who has his own style of how he thinks a team should work. And, you know, so you have some human agency there, you have some macro issues, yeah. right. And it gets, it gets very complicated, like much of history is. So we're looking forward to that book. By Bruce, I, I'm serious about having him back on maybe for a third time once that book comes out because I'm really looking forward to reading it. I think that's a wrap, Drew, on episode 35. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your support. And as always, may the, your way of improvement lead home. This has been a production of The Wave Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewaveimprovement.com. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out the other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice so others may more easily find this podcast. Let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at TWOILH Podcast. The podcast is brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, and Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios of Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Bruce Bergland. Our studio producer is Josh Lowry. I've been your producer, Drew Durley Hermeling, and your host is John Fia.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.